case you uh, closed your Bible, which I did and had to root through my Bible again to find the passage, we're in Psalm 63. And that's Psalm 63. And as you turn to the passage, I do need to give a little bit of a background to this. Um, as you probably already know, the Psalms are a collection of songs that were sang by the Jewish people. And they would sing these songs. Well, depending on which psalm it was, they would sing it whether they were at home or walking up to the temple, walking down from the temple. Uh, they would sing them to praise and honor God, and they would sing them to worship God. Because they're songs, you'll see statements like, to the choir master, a psalm of David, or to the chief musician, a song of David. Occasionally, like I just referred to, uh, they would sing going up and down from the temple. You'll see a psalm of ascent or a psalm of descent, uh, meaning they are to sing it when they're ascending up to the temple or when they're coming from the temple. Psalm 63, which again is our text, simply states this, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah which, unless you know what that's referring to, you have no idea when David wrote this. Most commentators think that Psalm 63 was written around the same time 2 Samuel 12 was recorded. And in 2 Samuel, we see David in the wilderness of Judah, and he's on the run. Now, typically when we think of David on the run, we think of him on the run from Saul. But that's not the case here. In this situation, David is on the run from a man named Absalom. Absalom had stolen the throne from David. He had essentially poisoned the people's opinion of David. And so David runs and hides in the wilderness. It's bad. It appears worse, though, when you realize that Absalom is David's son. David is running from his own son who wants to kill him. And he is hiding in the wilderness of Judah, preparing to defend himself from his son. So I want you to imagine with this, uh, imagine with me, and this might be a little difficult for those of us that don't have children yet, but imagine with me that every one of us has a child, and we've cared for that child for that child's whole life. We've raised that child. We're not bad parents, so we actually take care of our child. We take him to school, we feed him, do all the things that parents are supposed to do for 20 plus years, in some cases less than that. And that child completely and utterly rejects you. We, we can't really understand the parallel because in David's case, Absalom steals a whole kingdom from David. I don't have a kingdom, do you? So maybe uh, think of this, you spent your entire life building a business, and your son takes it from you. 
you bought or built a house and your son kicks you out. And imagine the emotion that you would feel from that. And imagine the stress that would strain your, your mind. Your child not only rejects you, but hates you. And your child wants you dead. Now remember, while David's struggling with just dealing with the emotions and the psychological devastation that's happening right now, he is in the wilderness. And when we think of wilderness in the U.S., we typically think of a forest, which isn't actually that bad. We could survive in a forest. It's not too bad. In their scenario, in their location, the wilderness is actually a desert. Uh, he is not hiding in a forest. He is hiding in a desert. And if you do any amount of research in a desert, or if you just travel out west a little bit, you'll notice something. The desert's really hot. It's very hot. Average temperature in a uh, summer in the desert, in the Judean desert, ranges from 100 to 110 every day. 100 degrees every single day. Which, if you're in the south, you're kind of like, well, that's no big deal. Until you remember that it's a desert, so there's no rain. And there's no water. In the wilderness of Judah, it might rain two inches a year. To put that into perspective, it rained two inches here on Monday. So David is hiding somewhere where the average temperature sits around 100 degrees. There's little to no water, and he is physically drained and exhausted. And I'm sure you can relate to this. David is physically drained and exhausted. He's emotionally drained. He's psychologically strained. And I'm sure he probably at some point felt like giving up. Keep that in mind as we read uh, Psalm 63. We'll read the whole chapter. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Let's pray, and then we'll break this passage down. Father God, we're thankful for all that you do for us. We're thankful for your love and your mercy and your grace. We're thankful that 
in all things, you are our refuge. And when life is difficult and when life is hard, you are still our refuge because you love us. Use every word that I say this evening to bring glory to your name. We love you and pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're going to break this passage down into three sections. And hopefully by the time we're done, these are all things that we can pray. And they're not just things that we've read and, you know, that's great and all. But they're things that we actually feel in our hearts. So the three sections that we're going to break this down into uh, would be verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 will focus on God as our desire. Verses 5 through 8 will focus on God as our delight, which is different. Let me be clear. That is a little different. And verses 9 through 11 will focus on God being our defense. All of which, all three of those, will lead us to a better understanding that it is God alone who satisfies. And it is God alone that we should be seeking satisfaction through. So let's start with verses 1 through 4. God, our desire. David writes in verse 1, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Now this is clearly a statement of David longing after something that he is familiar with. When David says, oh God, you are my God, he's doing two things. He's first off openly stating his position before God, similar to when we claim Jesus as our Lord. And secondly, he is personalizing this message. He's internalizing this. Derek Kidner in his commentary states that the longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend to be in touch with the friend that he holds dear. In other words, David isn't content with just stating that God is God. David wants everyone to know that God is his God. He is declaring that he is a partaker of this special relationship that God openly gives to anyone who repents and believes in him. Because David has personalized this relationship with God, the Bible says, early will I seek thee. Now, some translations like the NASB and I think the ESV render this as earnestly will I seek thee. I don't think it really matters which translation you use there. The idea is the same. If you are rising early, then honestly, you are seeking him earnestly. It's the same idea that we see in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, that states, Blessed is the man that delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is this desire to seek after God day and night. Or in other words... It is the desire to meditate on who God is whenever we have the chance to do it. The idea is that David will seek God intentionally with sincerity on purpose. He is being serious with his devotion to God. This is a statement of longing, and David utilizes his experience in the desert to show this. 
he expresses his desire utilizing imagery from that desert. So remember, he is more than likely dehydrated. So when he says, my, thir my soul thirsts for you, he means it. Just like the body thirsts for water, so does his soul thirst for God. It correlates with what the sons of Korah write in another psalm, that as the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. Maybe we don't understand how great this desire is. I don't know about you, but we have the availability to get water and food everywhere in the U.S. Most of us have no clue what it means to go hungry or go thirsty. So let me, let me explain this in a different manner. Since we don't have a lack of water, which would be a necessity, let's look at this as a lack of coffee, which is not so much a necessity as it is something that we delight in. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. The ability to drink coffee is something that we take for granted, right? I don't know about you, but one of the first things that I do in the morning is drink coffee. And quite frankly, that might actually show that I might have an addiction to coffee, but that's beside the point. I drink coffee, and, you know, halfway through my day, I drink another cup of coffee, and if it's a Sunday or Wednesday evening, I'm pretty sure I'm going to drink a third one somewhere around there. And if I don't do these, and again, this might prove that I'm addicted to coffee, if I don't do these things, it's almost as if my whole day is just kind of skewed and off, right? I'm sure some of you relate to this. I'm not the only one. Generally, every day I drink two to three cups of coffee, and if I skip one, I notice. And I'm sure you do too. Now, if you don't enjoy coffee, like my wife really doesn't enjoy coffee, I'm sure you have something else that fits in this category. Uh, maybe it's drinking tea. Maybe it's reading books. Uh, maybe it's binge-watching The Office, which I've never actually done because I can't stand The Office. But it's, it's this action, this motion of doing something that, that provides delight, right? And when you don't have that delight, you notice. Maybe it's that feeling you get when you get a good book and it's kind of raining outside and you have a nice cup of tea and that feeling of delight and happiness that you get for that. Maybe it's the feeling of satisfaction that you get when you do things like this. And if you can't really think of anything that you enjoy like this, just stop drinking water for a couple weeks and you'll understand what it's like to thirst. Verse 2 says, To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. And this is connecting to that, that delight that David is finding in God. Essentially, David is making this statement that because his soul longs after God, he has looked upon him in the sanctuary, which kind of sounds off. But remember, David wasn't always on the run. And David has memories of worshiping God in the temple. David is reminding himself of what it is like to worship Yahweh in the temple in a better time. 
when life isn't so difficult, when he isn't dehydrated and physically uh, in trouble, he remembers what it's like to worship God. Because of David's desire for God, he had beheld God's power and God's glory. Verses 3 and 4 says, Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. David's inner worship of God, the desire that David had built up inside of him, results in an outward expression of praise. I can say it a different way. Because of what was already inside of him, the, the desire to worship God, David acts on that and actually worships God. Because of God's loving kindness, because of God's steadfast love, which David actually says is better than life itself, his lips will praise him. And in his name, David will lift up his hands in worship. Can I ask you a question? When you think of God's loving kindness, do you think that that is better than life itself? In a sense, verses 1 through 4 speaks of a perseverance of faith. It speaks of David remaining faithful despite all of these terrible things happening. Despite everything that has happened to David and everything that is continuing to happen, remember, David's not out of trouble yet. He is still in trouble. He's still in hiding. Despite all of this, he still seeks for God, and he still worships God. And it all stems from that inner desire to worship God. It all stems from that innermost desire because his desire of God is so great, he worships even when life is hard. David expresses this inward desire to worship God in 1 through 4, and we can see that David truly desires God. I, I, you can't read this and not see David desiring God. Verses 5 through 8 then shows us this almost reward or this satisfaction that comes from desiring God and following God. God is truly David's delight. Verse 5 says this, My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul follows hard after thee, thy right hand upholds me. In verse 5, we see a clear contrast from verse 1. Whereas David's soul thirsts for God in verse 1, and his flesh faints for God in verse 5, we see his soul is satisfied. It's fulfilled. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness. As much as Rich and fatty foods would satisfy his physically pained and hungry body. So does God satisfy him spiritually. 
I can't help but to think of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. This woman is at the well and Jesus comes and talks to her. And there's a whole slew of things happening in this conversation. But I'm really only focusing on one part. Jesus makes this statement that everyone who drinks from this water, this well, will be thirsty again. But when speaking of the water that only he could provide, he states that whoever drinks of the water that Jesus, he gives him, will never be thirsty again. Because the the water that Jesus gives him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I can't help but to think of that correlation there. It seems clear to me that in David's seeking of God, that God truly satisfies and fulfills his soul. And because God brings satisfaction or delight, David's automatic response is to praise him and to worship him. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips and with meditation on God. Verse 6, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. If we've truly experienced the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ, we should respond with praise. And we should respond with meditating on him. So it's not just the initial, uh, hallelujah, I'm saved. It's the study and the meditation of him after that fact. If we've truly experienced grace through Jesus Christ, our natural response is to praise and to worship him. You have to consider, and maybe we don't understand this in our day, our sin makes us completely unable to be in the presence of God. Our sin destroys our lives. And it is only through the grace of God that we can even be in his presence. That's a huge deal, and it should result in praise. Verses 7 through 8 says, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul follows hard after thee, thy right hand upholds me. The immediate cause of David's meditation and praise is this simple fact. God has provided safety and support to David. That safety and support is only found in God. God was David's help and his strength. And because of this, David stayed close to God and continued to sing praise to him. In verse 8, David states, My soul follows hard after thee. The word here that is rendered as follows hard is actually utilized in a different part of Scripture. It's utilized in Genesis 2.24. And this is actually the same word that is utilized to explain how a husband and wife should have a relationship that cleaves together. It is a similar idea that the way that a husband clings to his wife and a wife clings to the husband, we should be clinging to God. Now we've seen David's expression of inward desire to God. We've 
seeing David finding delight and satisfaction only through God. And now we're going to look at this last section, which honestly, it's going to seem a little out of place. Uh, it sounds a little... We obviously don't sing songs like this anymore. So it kind of makes you wonder why this is in there in the first place. But let's read it, starting in verse 9. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. Kings shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Can you imagine if we sang that on Sunday? Uh, can you imagine how many people would turn away and not come back? But it is scripture and it is important. So what is the point of this? It is to show us that God defends David, just like God defends us if we believe. David makes this final statement, and it's a statement about David's enemies. But remember, Absalom isn't just David's enemy. He's God's enemy. Why is he God's enemy? Well, it's quite simple. God had chosen, he had selected David to be king. And when Absalom decided that God's plan was not good enough and took the throne, he became God's enemy. Not only is Absalom attacking David, but Absalom is attacking the person that God had selected to be king. So this is very much a statement about how God avenges and defends his own. David condemns those who seek to destroy his life. He condemns them to go into the depths of the earth. He states that they will be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be devoured by jackals. But the point isn't the judgment. That's not the point of this. It's actually about God caring for David, who is the rightful king. So let's be abundantly clear. In this situation, the reason why David could write this is because Absalom and Absalom's friends are in complete sin. They've acted wickedly. And because of what they've done, God in his holiness and in his righteousness and in his justice has to do something. And while you could make the argument that David really is the one who does it because he prepares an army to fight against Absalom, it seems pretty clear in David's writing here that he has no doubt that God is going to be there for him and that God would defend him and that it's really not him doing the battle, it's God doing the battle. Really, despite the fact that David is about to go into battle to defend his throne again, the only thing that David really has to do is what verse 11 says. The king, that's David, shall rejoice in God. David calling himself the king is more than just utilizing king as a synonym for I. It's not like him saying, I will rejoice in God. It is David laying claim to his title that God had given him. David is the rightful king, and David is calling himself 
the king because he is rightfully the king. Just like we as fellow believers were fellow heirs with Jesus. We are children of God. We're part of this global church that you know, we call the church. We are family with God. We have to lay claim to that. You realize that, right? It's not enough to just know that. You actually have to believe that. God is David's defense because David has been called by God to be king. And David has trusted in God to defend him righteously. We've seen David claiming that God is his desire. And we've seen how God fulfills the delights of those who desire after him. And we've seen how God protects those that are his. And we could probably go into way more detail with this, but I'm assuming you eventually want to go home. So let's start wrapping this up with some application. With verses 1 through 4, looking at God being our desire, how should we apply this? Well, just like David, we ought to be able to make the same statement that David does. God, you are my God. We should all be able to say that. And while this isn't necessarily an evangelistic message, the natural question that stems from this is, can you actually say that? God, you are my God? Is God truly your God? If we all in this room are actually believers, can we honestly say the next phrase, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, and if you're like me, let's be honest, we would all agree with that statement and word, but do our actions really reflect that? Do we actually act in a manner that God is whom we desire, who we thirst after? David is on the run from someone who stole his throne. David is on the run from someone who rejected him, and David is on the run from someone who wants to see him dead. And yet David still honestly says, early I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. And just as a, like a footnote here, it seems fairly clear that David's mindset, that God is whom he desires, it seems fairly clear that he was desiring God before he got in trouble. Because he looked upon God in the sanctuary and beheld his power. He earnestly sought God before he was ever in the wilderness. So uh, maybe if you're here this evening, you're thinking, if stuff happens and I need to follow God, then you will. That's not the right attitude to have. We should follow God because God loves us, not because we're in trouble. Are you earnestly, seriously seeking God? Have you made it a point to seek him above all other things? Verses 5 through 8 looks at God being our delight, or God giving us satisfaction when we actually do desire him and we do seek after him. David states that his soul will be satisfied as food satisfies the body. 
That part of this satisfaction is found in praising and worshiping God. It's found in remembering God and meditating on who he is. The satisfaction and the delight that David is talking about is far greater than the satisfaction and delight that I get when I drink coffee. It is far better than the satisfaction and delight that you would get drinking tea, sitting by a window, watching the rain fall. It is far better than anything this life affords, even if you do like The Office and you binge watch it all the time. Delighting in Jesus brings more satisfaction than The Office does. This satisfaction is far greater than anything we can accomplish in our own strength. It is far greater than anything we can do at work, anything we can do at school, anything. David makes the point that his soul clings to God, and this only occurs because he has taken the time to earnestly, seriously seek him. The question then is this, are you finding satisfaction in God, like the woman at the well finds living water from Jesus, or are you trying to find satisfaction in other things? You will try to find satisfaction somewhere. Absalom was trying to find satisfaction by stealing the throne, by stealing from his father, by trying to kill his father. He was trying to find satisfaction. He was trying to find delight. But true satisfaction and true delight only comes from knowing and worshiping Jesus. And lastly, verses 9 through 11, looks at God being our defense. David shows almost no concern whatsoever about the future of his throne. He knows he's the king. He was certain that God would take care of him because God had already declared him as the king. And while you and I don't well, I don't know, something crazy might happen and you might have a throne one day on earth here, like during this lifetime. But I, I'm kind of doubtful. Um, I don't think any of us in this room are, are, is, is going to have a throne. So while we're not thinking about thrones, we still have to remember that Jesus Christ has already secured our future. He has already prepared a place for us. Your position in this household of God is secure because of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. He has promised for us a place. And let's be honest, Jesus keeps his promises. We can have comfort in Jesus because Jesus has already won everything. I don't know if you've read Revelation, but it's pretty clear Jesus wins it all. We can have comfort in Jesus because Jesus has already won the war. Despite us still living in the war. Jesus has already claimed us. If we truly believe in him, he has already called us his own. Jesus has already redeemed us. Jesus has already bought us back. 
And Jesus has already brought us into that family of God. So just like David, we can rejoice in God. In short, the fact that Jesus has already won, that Jesus has already claimed us as his own, and that Jesus protects us, ought to motivate us to find our satisfaction in him. Because nothing else can satisfy us. And it ought to motivate us to find delight in Jesus. True satisfaction comes from knowing him, worshiping him, meditating on him, and finding our strength in him. Let's pray. We'll sing one more song and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for all that you've done for us. We're thankful that you have claimed us as your own. We're thankful that we are part of a family that only you could put together. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy, and we're so thankful that you love us. I pray that you uh, continue to remind us of that every day. We love you and pray these things in your son's name. Amen.